Rumba la quince brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Viva la quince brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Que sea cubierto de gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Que sea cubierto de gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Luchamos contra los morros, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Luchamos contra los morros, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Mercenarios y fascistas, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Mercenarios y fascistas, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Solo es nuestro deseo, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Solo es nuestro deseo, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Acabar con el fascismo, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Acabar con el fascismo, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. En el frente de Jarama, rumba la rumba la rumba la. En el frente de Jarama, rumba la rumba la rumba la. No tenemos ni aviones, ni tanques, ni cañones. No tenemos ni aviones, ni tanques, ni cañones. Ya salimos de España, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Ya salimos de España, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Por luchar en otros frentes, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Por luchar en otros frentes, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Viva la quince brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Viva la quince brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Que sea cubierto de gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Que sea cubierto de gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Uh, once again, opening up with me, doing a little ditty on the guitar. Viva la quince brigada. Um, a song which, you know, I was actually unable to determine the authorship of this song uh, after digging around online. So once again, I'm just going to go with... Um, uh, you know, this was written by Trad, it's, even though it's not that old, obviously. Maybe it was based on an older folk song, but obviously it's about the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, and quite particularly about the Battle of Harama in 1937, popularized in this country by Pete Seeger, but um, also very popular in Spain. So uh, I'm just going to go with the notion that this song is, uh, like I like to say, whenever I choose my songs, so avoid any um, copyright dilemmas. I just, you know, try to choose songs which are a part of the intellectual commons of the human race. And I believe that this song is. And uh, once again, I also like to choose songs which are extremely historically didactic. And that's what I've done tonight as well. We're going to be talking about the Spanish Civil War because it began at this time of year in July of 1936. 83 years ago this month, the Spanish Civil War began, and 80 years ago, a couple of months ago, back in um, April of 1939, the Spanish Civil War ended in disaster. Those of us who know our history know. And the reason this song was uh, popularized by Pete Seeger 
and was well known in uh, folk circles here in the United States is because the uh, international brigades, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and so on, anti-fascist volunteers from the United States and other countries played a key role in the Battle of Harama, where the um, fascist advance along the Rio Harama was successfully beaten back, despite, as the song notes, you know, the fact that uh, the anti-fascist defenders were massively outgunned, didn't have any planes, didn't have any cannons, didn't have any tanks, ni tenemos ni aviones, ni tanques, ni cañones, unlike the, uh, the fascist forces who were attacking them. And nonetheless, they held the line. And there is a, um, a tendency of which, you know, <laughs> I'm guilty as much as anybody else among uh, leftists to really view the, um, the Spanish Civil War as a very clear-cut, morally stark, heroic struggle against fascism, which was betrayed by the world. And I share that perception, and yet, like everything in life, and particularly anything that concerns war, which is a nasty business, <clears throat> even when the, uh, the, the struggle is very, very stark and morally clear-cut, as it was in Spain, war is always a nasty business, and there are always, shall we say, complications. And in fact, the complications are quite evident right from the lyrics of that very song, where uh, right there in the second verse, before it even says, we fight against the mercenaries and fascists, it says, luchamos contra los moros, we fight the moors. And uh, when you've got a song from Spain, including the words, we fight the moors, well, you're obviously getting into some complicated territory, which obviously has some, uh, you know, very ugly historical resonances of the expulsion of the Moors in 1492 and the subsequent Spanish Inquisition, etc. And the um, much later in the 19th and 20th centuries, Spanish colonial incursions into Morocco and actually seizing a piece of Morocco as a colonial holding. And uh, there are historical reasons for this. The reason that line is there, people know the history in July of 1936, the Spanish Civil War began when General Francisco Franco and his co-conspirators launched their military rebellion from Spanish Morocco and then invaded the mainland of Spain with an army of um, Moroccan troops with the Moorish Legion. Now, Franco and his co-conspirators the other generals who he launched the coup d'etat with, he eventually emerged as the top dog and established himself as the dictator of Spain when it was all over three years later. But uh, he and his co-conspirators, General Mola, General San Jorge, Cuerpo de Llano, they had all cut their teeth as, well, in addition to suppressing labor strife within Spain, uh, also suppressing anti-colonial revolts by the Arab and Berber population of Spanish Morocco, and they um, raised a, uh, a colonial army, a sort of a Moorish legion called the Army of Africa, to fight against other Moors in Spanish Morocco and to put down these rebellions. And playing the usual neo-colonial game, or actually that wasn't even neo-colonial, it was just flat-out colonial, playing the usual colonial game of um, exploiting rivalries in the indigenous populations 
rivalries between tribes and clans and so on. Uh, they actually uh, won loyalty from the Moorish troops that they were commanding and actually used them for their invasion of Spain. Now, they thought that, you know, when, when they invaded mainland Spain from Spanish Morocco, they called upon the military to rise up and support them. And they thought that they were going to uh, reestablish a dictatorship. Spain at that time had a kind of a troubled democracy after which had just recently emerged from a period of military dictatorship. And they thought that they were going to be able to reestablish a dictatorship on short order and that their coup d'etat would be immediately successful across Spain. It was not. And um, the uh, fascist military rising, pro-fascist military rising, was put down by popular uprisings and non-cooperation on the part of the population uh, in many areas of Spain. So uh, finally, when the, when the dust settled, Spain was divided. Around half of the country was under uh, the control of Franco and his co-conspirators. Uh, and uh, around half of the country continued to be under the control of the Republic. And this set the stage for the Spanish Civil War, which would last for another three years. You know, I'm telling all this uh, story tonight, not merely as a history lesson, but I am going to be tying it in to, um, I'm going to be making an analogy, which I hope that you're all going to grasp to what's been happening in um, Syria for the past eight years now. And my point about how leftists today kind of like glorify the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War, as I do, I mean, I acknowledge it, but often they kind of blind themselves to the actual complexities, the actual, you know, political and moral complexities, even on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. Whereas uh, the stance of, um, with rare exceptions here and there, the stance of um, leftist forces around the world regarding what's going on in Syria today has been flatly on the wrong side, on the side of the dictator, on the side of the dictatorship, rather than on the side of the anti-fascist resistance. So we're going to be, uh, you know, drawing an historical parallel here and trying to um, determine the reasons for this uh, divergence of reaction from leftist forces around the world to what happened in Spain between 1936 and 1939 and what's been happening in Syria since 2011. Okay, so uh, July 1936, Spain was divided. Madrid and Valencia remained in the hands of the Republic, as did the Basque Country, as did um, Catalonia. The rest of the country was under the control of Franco. The reaction of the international community was extremely um, problematic and hypocritical. The Western democracies did not come to the aid of democratic Spain. And this was protested by leftist forces all around the world as a betrayal of Spain and a betrayal of basic anti-fascist principles. The only country which significantly came to the defense of the Spanish Republic was the Soviet Union. The only other one really was uh, Mexico, which was just then emerging from a long period of um, social instability itself and obviously didn't have much capacity to help. The Soviet Union was the only country which came to the, uh, to the defense of, um, of Republican Spain. 
but it imposed certain political conditions for its aid, which ultimately led to, you know, breaches within the anti-fascist ranks and kind of a civil war within the civil war, which we'll talk about. But before I get to that point, I just have to point out that the fascist powers, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, were not so scrupulous, and they did not adhere to the international arms embargo, which the Western powers had worked out not to supply arms to either side in the Spanish Civil War. Quite to the contrary, Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy massively backed Franco's forces, and not only with arms and aid, but actually sending troops and warplanes, most notoriously the Condor Legion, which was a... uh, a force of Nazi volunteer pilots who went to fight for the fascists in Spain and most notoriously wiped out the village of Guernica. Only the most famous of several brutal attacks of aerial terror, which completely shocked the world. Because at that time, it was still something new. Today, we're all rather inured to it. And it barely makes for headlines today when villages are wiped out by warplanes. But back then... It was really the first that the world had witnessed, or among the first such uh, massive aerial assaults that the world had witnessed, and, um, and it shocked the world when the Basque village of Guernica was wiped out by uh, Nazi warplanes of the Condor Legion, which is why the battle was completely lopsided. Now, to talk about the, uh, well, for starters, <laughs> to talk about the tensions within the anti-fascist ranks. The government in uh, Republican Spain at that time was a, a so-called Popular Front government, which was uh, adhering to um, Joseph Stalin's strategy of trying to build a Popular Front, which would bring the communist and the Western democracies together to oppose the fascist powers. And uh, Britain and France and the United States were just like not buying it; they weren't ready to get on board. <laughs> <laughs> they were kind of hoping that, uh, you know, when the war came and everybody knew that there was going to be another world war on the horizon, they were kind of hoping that they could sit it out and they could just watch um, Hitler and Stalin destroy each other and then pick up the pieces afterwards. That's what they were gambling on, Neville Chamberlain and the rest of that cowardly lot. But still, Stalin was trying to woo them into the popular front. So he quite specifically did not want to see a revolution in Spain. He wanted the Popular Front government to uh, not do anything which was going to be perceived as threatening to, uh, you know, the capitalist powers of, uh, you know, the Western democracies, Britain, France, United States, for the most part. Which is why, first of all, when actual revolutionary forces began to emerge, particularly in uh, Catalonia, they were put down by the Spanish Republic at the urging of Moscow. But we'll get to that next. First, I want to talk about the Moorish dimension to the whole ghastly war which was going on at that time. Two works which were written immediately after the war, which were um, critical of the Spanish Republic, obviously intransigently anti-fascist, but nonetheless critical of errors which were made by the Spanish Republic, were Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell, who actually served at the front in Aragon, in an anti-fascist militia and wrote a memoir and work of political analysis after the war. And also um, Lessons of the Spanish Revolution by Vernon Richards, the anarchist writer who was um, attempting to build support for the anti-fascist forces in Britain. 
during the war. And both of them, both George Orwell and Vernon Richards, made the point that um, one thing that the Republican government in Madrid could have done to weaken the fascist ranks is they could have declared Spanish Morocco independent. And uh, this obviously would have um, dealt a blow to Franco and his co-conspirators who were using Spanish Morocco as the staging ground for their invasion of Spain. And were actually drawing upon Moroccan troops from Spanish Morocco to serve as their cannon fodder. And they never took this move. The Republican government in Madrid never took the really obvious move of declaring Spanish Morocco to be free, which almost certainly would have um, resulted in an uprising against the fascists who were in control there if they had done so. They never did it. And in fact, because uh, the anti-fascist forces were frequently fighting Moroccan troops, Moroccan troops were serving as cannon fodder for the fascists, there was even some, you know, very ugly racist and uh, colonialist thinking and rhetoric and propaganda within the anti-fascist ranks, which is certainly a, uh, a rather absurd irony, especially from today's perspective. All right, before we get to that, I want to get back to the revolutionary forces. Here's where they enter the story. It's in July of 1936. The reason that the fascist coup did not succeed in Barcelona and Catalonia generally, Barcelona being the regional capital of Catalonia in the northeast corner of Spain, is uh, that the anarchists, who were very strong in Catalonia and in Barcelona, it was their real stronghold in Spain, they had an uprising, a sort of a counter-uprising against a fascist uprising. And they um, broke into the armories and seized guns and erected barricades in the streets, and they beat back the pro-fascist forces. So, ironically, in Barcelona and Catalonia, it was the anarchists who actually saved the Spanish Republic. And this was the beginning of uh, you know what we anarchists consider to be the most glorious chapter in the history of anarchism, a period of not quite a year after July of 1936, when the anarchists were really in control of Barcelona and Catalonia. The regional government of Catalonia and the Republican government of Spain continued to be nominally in control, but in reality, they had really lost control to the anarchists who were collectivizing industry, taking over the factories and actually running the entire industrial apparatus. Catalonia and particularly Barcelona were the industrial heartland of Spain, most industrialized part of the country. And uh, really the entire industrial apparatus was seized by the anarchists and collectivized. The factories were continuing to function now under the control of anarchist collectives and uh, uh, machine shops and, uh, you know, auto plants and so on, were actually reconfigured to make weapons and and armored vehicles and so on for the war effort against the fascists. And meanwhile, out in the countryside, the uh, the peasants were taking over the big plantations and collectivizing the land and redistributing it to the peasants and establishing agrarian collectives and establishing, uh, you know, socialism from below, as it were, and actually um, 
you know, launching a real revolutionary movement and kicking out the landlords and kicking out the owners of the factories, the industrialists and so on, and actually uh, running society along, uh, you know, socialist, anti-authoritarian, self-organized lines successfully. And at first, there was kind of an alliance between the Republican government and the anarchists. The Republican government recognized that, you know, okay, the anarchists have really become the de facto power on the ground in Barcelona and Catalonia. We're going to have to deal with them. And in the name of anti-fascist solidarity, there was actually an alliance between the main anarchist organizations in Catalonia and the Popular Front government in Madrid. And the two main anarchist organizations were the CNT and the FI, sometimes referred to merely as the CNT FI because they were closely allied with each other. But uh, one was a trade union, the National Confederation of Labor, the CNT, Confederación Nacional de Trabajo. And the other was um, a more openly revolutionary alliance of anarchist affinity groups, so to speak, or networks of anarchist militants called the FI, the Anarchist Federation of Iberia. And together, they really seized control in Barcelona and Catalonia in July of 1936. But um, the FI was somewhat more rigidly, ideologically anarchist. And uh, they sort of had a parting of the ways when anarchist leaders were actually, well, for starters, the FI denied that, you know, they were such pure anarchists that they denied that they had any leaders. In fact, they really did. <laughs> Buenaventura de Ruti, certainly the best known anarchist of this period, was uh, the most influential figure in the FI. But they said that they didn't have any leaders. They had influential militants, but no actual leaders. But with this pact, which was worked out between the Republican government and the anarchists, some anarchist leaders were actually invited to join the Republican government in Madrid. And uh, some leaders from the CNT agreed to do so over the protest of the FI. One of them, the most famous, was uh, Federica Monsigny, who became the health minister. And, uh, you know, she justified this, you know, under the face of criticism from her more, you know, rigidly ideological anarchist comrades who dissented from her joining the government. She justified this legitimately, uh, you know, by saying that as health minister, she could... um, promote birth control and women's rights and uh, and so on, which, you know, had actually been made permissible, had been uh, legalized by, uh, you know, divorce, birth control, etc. It had been made legal by the Spanish Republic. And uh, this was exactly the kind of stuff that, you know, Franco and his um, fascist collaborators were trying to repeal. But, uh, you know, in, in many regions of Spain, women were not aware of their rights. So she could use her office to promote the rights of women and reproductive freedom. So, yeah, she had a good point there. But uh, there was uh, here a, a really ironic and very revealing example of uh, sort of racist and neo-colonialist rhetoric being taken up by anti-fascist and in this case, actual anarchist voice in Spain can be taken from a... Uh, a speech that Frederica Monsigny gave at a mass meeting in Madrid in August 1936, where she decried Franco and his collaborators in the following terms, with this enemy lacking dignity or a conscience, without a feeling of being Spaniards, 
because if they were Spaniards, if they were patriots, they would not have let loose on Spain the Moors to impose the civilization of the fascists, not as a Christian civilization, but as a Moorish civilization. People we went to colonize for them now come to colonize us with religious principles and political ideas which they wish to impose on the minds of the Spanish people. So, pretty clear-cut xenophobia and Islamophobia, as we would put it today, from uh, an anti-fascist anarchist leader who even, ironically, invokes Christian civilization in favorable terms. Certainly an irony. So, yeah, there were um, moral complexities and contradictions, shall we say, within the anti-fascist ranks in Spain between 1936 and 1939. And uh, finally, there was a break between the Popular Front government and the anarchists. Pretty clearly, at the behest of Moscow, at a certain point, and that point was actually 1937, May of 1937 particularly, the Republican government said, okay, enough is enough with, you know, this anarchist experiment in Catalonia, we're putting it down. And in May of 1937, street fighting broke out in Barcelona between the anarchists and the civil guards, which were loyal to the Republican government in Madrid. And this was really the beginning of the end of the anarchist experiment in Catalonia. Shortly after this, actual army troops were dispatched by Madrid to um, put down the anarchist experiment in Catalonia and the collectivized farms were attacked and the land returned to the former landowners and so on. And basically a capitalist order was reimposed in Catalonia at, ironically, the behest of the Soviet Union. And this was, uh, you know, what was called the civil war within the civil war. When the anti-fascists were actually fighting amongst themselves. And the Republican government, the Popular Front government, accused the anarchists of, you know, being splitters and not going along with the program and being undisciplined. And the anarchists accused the Popular Front government of being counter-revolutionary and the uh, pawns of Moscow and etc. But this certainly weakened the anti-fascist ranks. And two years after this, in the spring of 1939, Franco and the fascists emerged victorious they seized Madrid. Ironically, once again, it was Buenaventura de Ruti, the most militant and intransigent of the anarchist leaders who actually led a column of volunteers that came to the defense of Madrid, and he was actually killed in the siege of Madrid. But in 39, Madrid fell, shortly followed by the rest of anti-fascist Spain. Spain fell to Franco, who established his dictatorship, which lasted until he died in 1975. Spain remained a fascist dictatorship all the way to 1975. During his brutal reign, particularly in the early years, there were massive reprisals against people who had supported the Republic or were perceived or suspected of having supported the Republic. Something like 100,000 people were put to death. And that's in addition to the approximately 2 million that had been killed over the course of the war. Hard to get exact figures. This was all ghastly enough in its own right, but the implications for the global stage 
were even worse because it was very clear that Hitler and Mussolini were viewing Spain as a test war and that a much larger worldwide conflagration was right on the horizon. Immediately after Spain had been betrayed and fascism had seized power there, Stalin gave up on uh, his notion of trying to woo the Western democracies into a popular front against fascism and cut his deal with Hitler in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. September 1939, they gobbled up Poland and Finland on uh, mutually agreeable terms, the two dictators, Hitler and Stalin, and uh, precipitated the Second World War. Of course, uh, in 1941, Hitler would betray his buddy Stalin and invade the Soviet Union, and that's when the, the Popular Front was actually revived, this time successfully. And, uh, you know, the big three, Stalin, Churchill, and FDR, were opposing the Axis powers, Hitler, Mussolini, and Imperial Japan. And, of course, before that was all over, many millions had lost their lives. Genocide was carried out in Europe. The atomic bombs were used in Japan. And the stage was set for the completely dystopian post-war situation of the Cold War, nuclear stockpiling, and the great showdown between the United States and the USSR. And finally, the, uh, you know, post-Cold War (laughs) dystopian situation that the world finds itself in today, which brings us to the cycle coming round again and the current absolutely horrific disaster in Syria. Hafez Assad came to power in a coup d'etat in 1971. His Ba'ath party, with an explicitly fascistic ideology, directly inspired by Nazi Germany, established a thoroughgoing police state and one-party dictatorship, committed terrible acts of repression in the few rebellions against his rule. Entire villages were wiped out. Horrific massacres, most famously that in the city of Hama in 1982. In the year 2000, he died and passed on power to his son, Bashar Assad, who continued to run a one-party state and a personal dictatorship with leader worship and all of the trappings of fascism until finally a revolution broke out during the, uh, the greater Arab revolution of 2011 where finally, after there had been revolutions in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, etc., the wave reached Syria. And it began in March of 2011, where famously in the town of Daraa, some school children started painting slogans of the Arab Revolution, the people want the downfall of the regime, etc., on a wall, and they were arrested and brutalized by the police, which set off a wider wave of protest. Peaceful, unarmed, pro-democratic, secular protesters were serially massacred, one after another, after another, after another, throughout 2011, until finally the Free Syrian Army emerged, led by um, defecting officers from Assad's army, and initially formed as a self-defense force, to protect protesters, but it quickly escalated 
to civil war. Certainly by 2012, it had turned into a civil war. And it's very interesting that when pro-democratic forces were resisting fascism in Spain in the 1930s, and the Western democracies failed to come to their defense, this was protested by leftists around the world as a betrayal. Whereas in Syria, when exactly the same thing happened, the overwhelming position of leftist forces around the world has been, no, the Western powers should not come to the defense of the pro-democratic forces in Syria. And in fact, protesting what little and insufficient aid was finally provided to the pro-democratic forces. Very ironic. And failing to win any significant support from the Western democracies, even after the Assad regime was really escalating to crimes against humanity to try to beat back the pro-democratic forces, massive aerial bombardment of civilian populations on a scale far outstripping what was seen in Spain at the hands of the Condor Legion, eventually escalating even to the use of poisonous gas, chemical attacks. That was when the forces of reactionary political Islam, jihadists, shall we say, to use the popular shorthand, perceived that there was an opening. And that's when they began to establish a stronghold in Syria. They had their own networks of arms and money and so on. And they appealed to many Syrians, telling them, look, you've been betrayed by the world. You've been left defenseless before this monstrous dictatorship, which is being massively backed up by Russia, by the way. (laughs) Russia, which was on the right side, on the anti-fascist side in Spain in the 1930s, is on the wrong side and on the fascist side in Syria today. Another irony. But, you know, the jihadists basically came in and told the Syrians, look, you've been left defenseless against this, you know, massive military, which is backed up by Russia, Russia, which would eventually directly intervene in the war, by the way. The West isn't helping you, we'll help you. And that's when the jihadists actually began to establish a, um, a foothold in Syria, eventually leading to the emergence of ISIS. This was the first civil war within the civil war, so to speak, where it actually became a three-way conflict between the Assad regime, the Free Syrian Army, and ISIS. Contrary to a lot of propaganda, shameful, lying propaganda, which has been perpetrated by Russia and its echo chamber among leftists in the West, the FSA and ISIS were not allied. They were opposed to one another, and they were fighting for control, particularly of northern Syria, in addition to both fighting the regime. And then the next element uh, to emerge were the Kurds. It's in 2012, just as the situation was descending into war, the Assad regime lost power of the Kurdish regions in the northeast of Syria, and revolutionary Kurdish forces seized power there. It was a local uprising, and they seized power. And the revolutionary Kurdish forces were um, actually, in their ideology, and are, continue to be, radical left and influenced by anarchism, very strongly influenced by anarchism. The general Syrian opposition around uh, the FSA and the uh, 
to my mind, more importantly, the local coordination committees, which were sort of like, again, a network of affinity groups, they sort of had an anarchist ethic as well. And in fact, one of their early founders and theorists who would later die in Assad's prisons, Omar Aziz, actually was a left-wing anarchist. But um, the predominant consensus among the general Arab revolutionary force was basically just pro-democratic, not quite specifically radical left and anarchist-oriented, as uh, was that of the Kurds. And initially, they were allied, particularly in uh, 2014, there was a formal pact which was worked out between uh, the FSA and the Kurdish movement in northeastern Syria to fight ISIS together. And the Kurds uh, had seized power in uh, their area of northeastern Syria, which they call Rojava. And, you know, once again, putting in place a kind of a um, anarchist-oriented model or social experiment, if you will, and actually uh, collectivizing the economy and agriculture and running their towns on, you know, principles of um, autonomous councils. Very clear-cut analogy. I hope you're grasping here to uh, what I just described about Catalonia back in the 1930s. And just like the, uh, the Catalan anarchists had a pact with the Popular Front government, for a while, the Rojava Kurds had a pact with the Free Syrian Army. And once again, it fell apart due to foreign intrigues, where Turkey emerged as the patron of the Free Syrian Army and the main, you know, Arab-Syrian opposition and Syrian rebels. And the Turkish government is, you know, adamantly opposed to any Kurdish autonomy because they view it as a threat due to the significant Kurdish population within Turkish territory, which has also been building this same kind of um, anarchist-oriented model of political resistance and local autonomous self-rule. So when Turkey stepped in to protect the FSA, when Assad, with massive Russian support, was launching his offensive in the north to take back land which had fallen to the rebels, this had the effect of pitting the FSA against the Kurds and exploding the alliance which had emerged between them. And threatened by by Turkish intervention in northern Syria, and Turkey has actually also introduced troops into northern Syria now, and has been threatening to invade Rojava, the Kurds turned to um, the United States, for uh, which actually did offer them aid, not quite specifically to fight Assad, but to fight ISIS. And U.S. war aims in Syria have been, from the very beginning, not to fight Assad, but to fight ISIS something which it is very important to remember. There's been a lot of propaganda to the contrary. So unfortunately, the FSA and the Rojava Kurds have been so thoroughly pitted against each other by great power manipulations that it has nearly come to yet another civil war within the civil war, this time between the FSA and the Arab rebels on one hand and the Rojava Kurds on the other. And you've got the same kind of propaganda which is being hurled back and forth where, you know, the FSA is accusing the Rojava Kurds of being separatists and splitters, although they are not separatists. They have specifically disavowed separatism. They want local autonomy and local rule in their region, but within the context of the United Syria. And the Kurds baiting the FSA and the Arab rebels as, you know, um, 
pawns of Turkey and jihadists and so on. So with the opposition divided and the fascist Assad dictatorship being massively backed up by a foreign power, in this case Russia, the Assad regime has almost succeeded in reconquering all of Syria and reestablishing its dictatorship. Not yet. The two most significant holdouts are um, Rojava, which is kind of a, um, a U.S. protectorate now, to a certain extent, because the Rojava Kurds, like I say, have been you know, sort of groomed as proxies to fight ISIS by U.S. imperialism. And Idlib province, which is the last stronghold of um, the Arab opposition, which has really become something of a, of a Turkish protectorate. Idlib, as I speak, is being massively bombarded by Assad regime and Russian forces. Since Assad and Russia began their offensive on Idlib in April, something like 600 civilians have been killed in Idlib. A uh, hundred of those just over the course of the past week, where there was massive bombardment in two towns, one by the name of Tubish, the other by the name of Ariha, where for those few people around the world, such as myself, who are paying attention, you know, there have been absolutely horrific images of the um, civilian population, which has been slaughtered there on their massive bombardment. And uh, here's the thing that really, really gets to me, is that, you know, when the world first witnessed this kind of thing in Guernica in 1937, there was such shock and revulsion about it that the name Guernica you know, echoes in history all of these generations later. And Pablo Picasso did his famous painting about it, facsimile of which for many years actually, uh, you know, was hanging on the wall at the United Nations as a warning to the world not to engage in this kind of thing and to take measures to avoid this kind of massive atrocity. And today it is so commonplace and we are all so inured to it that nobody, apart from, you know, the few fanatics such as myself who are closely following it, I've even heard the names Tubish or Ariha, where just this week Guernicas took place, so to speak. Just this week. And hardly anybody is even paying attention because we're also completely inured to massive aerial bombardment of civilian populations today. It hardly even makes a dent in our conscience. The war in Syria is not over. But in uh, reprisals and the killing of political prisoners by the Bashar regime in the areas of Syria that it has reconquered, perhaps as many as 100,000 people have been killed over the course of the past few years. Certainly many tens of thousands. And the overall toll of the war is at least a half a million. But whereas in Spain, between 1936 and 1937, leftists all around the world demanded support for the anti-fascist forces, and decried the betrayal of the anti-fascist forces, and really blinded themselves to the actual complexities and contradictions even within the anti-fascist ranks. In Syria, so-called leftist forces around the world are demanding the betrayal of the anti-fascist forces, and are echoing the propaganda of the regime that all of the anti-fascist forces are, you know, ISIS and jihadists, and doing everything they can to hype and to emphasize the inevitable contradictions and complexities even within the anti-fascist ranks. So I'd like to know why. 
And the last thing I'll say is that just like the betrayal of the anti-fascist forces in Spain in the 1930s was a victory for international fascism, for Hitler and Mussolini, and gave them a sense of what they could get away with and presaged the next and far more destructive war, which was waged in every corner of the globe, the Second World War. You know, I fear that what Bashar Assad is being allowed to get away with today is being taken as a green light by dictators and war criminals all over the world, that they can get away with it too, and that the Syrian war could similarly presage a global conflagration. And with the weaponry that we have today, far outstripping even the massive, horrific, mechanized killing that was witnessed in World War II, if it comes to that, I don't know if humanity is going to survive. I don't know if humanity has got very long to survive anyway, given the ecological crisis, which is just a time bomb ticking away day after day after day after day, while we're all distracted, or at any rate should be distracted, by the ghastly bloodshed in places like Syria and Yemen and Congo and Burma and the Philippines and many other places around the world. But if it actually comes to another great power conflict, it could all be over in one fell swoop, if you get my drift. So I'm just going to attempt to end on a note of hope here, that even though they were betrayed, the anti-fascist forces in Spain continued to provide inspiration for the anti-fascist forces in the conflict which came and continue to provide inspiration even for anti-fascist forces today, all of these years later. And while the world has accrued a great deal of bad karma, shall we say, which is going to have to be paid for by giving Bashar Assad a free hand to really commit genocide in Syria and to destroy the country in the name of shoring up his corrupt, personalistic, autocratic rule, it still isn't over. And it isn't too late for us to raise a voice and to act in solidarity with the anti-fascist forces in Syria, Arab and Kurdish alike. This has been Bill Weinberg on the Counter Vortex. Check us out online, countervortex.org. If you're in New York City, you can stand with Free Syria New York City at our Vigil for Peace in Syria every Friday at 6 p.m. in the southern part of Union Square Park along 14th Street. Please be in touch and let us know what you think. As always, I just urge that people think about what I say and be in touch to uh, give me your reaction. Join the counter vortex. Join the resistance. Over and out. <laughs>